on today's episode, when to get medical scans with Paul Ingram. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. I have tried to get Paul Ingram. I think I asked him to come onto the podcast maybe a year and a half ago. (laughs) And at the time, like our timelines weren't really matching up and the communication just moved on. But luckily, Paul reached out to me and uh, a few months ago and said, let's give this a go. Let's give this a shot. And we finally organized something. And it's been on my mind for a long time now to do an episode about scans to do episodes about like, you know, x-rays, CT scans, ultrasounds, MRIs, like when is it the best time to do that? And why, what should we consider when getting scans? What are the pros? What are the cons? And when Paul reached out and said, let's do this, um, what do you think? I said, can we do an episode about scans? Because I've asked a lot of other guests and they've kind of shied away from it because it is a, a bit of a sensitive topic. But He was happy to dive into this uh, topic. And for those who don't know Paul, Paul Ingram is the creator of painscience.com. If you've listened to episodes of the podcast, you know I am a huge fan of exploring the complexities of pain, especially chronic pain. Uh, Paul is, he creates just really high quality content on on the website. He mainly hones in on, um, pain, but also like trigger points and like myofascial release, that sort of stuff. Um, Passive treatments, you would call it. Uh, But he delves into a lot of other things. And he is a self-taught health science journalist. And this is what I love. Uh, He was a massage therapist by trade, um, but has since just self-taught, dived into a world of medical research and um, all the publications, research, systematic reviews, everything has sort of come out. He's just self-taught himself, which listening to his previous interviews and reading his work, I place him so high up on the ladder of who I trust in regards to advice that is delivered. And in his website, on his articles, um, it's constantly updating. He's constantly researching, learning something new, and then going back to his website and updating things, which I absolutely love, is keeping up to date with current evidence. And I think that kind of suits um, the narrative of the podcast or suits you listening here because you're one to, well, most of us anyway, don't have health professional degrees. We're just recreational runners, but 
want to try and inform ourselves as best as possible, find the right information and learn more about the injury, learn more about injury prevention, learn more about increasing running performance safely. And just the journey of being self-taught and surrounding yourself with the right information, the right guidance. Um, I think Paul is a perfect example of that, but just taking it to a world-class level. So today, like I said, we're talking about medical scans. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of when to get a scan, why to get a scan, um, the dangers, possibilities of getting a scan. And I'm definitely going to have Paul back on to talk about the trigger point release, the myofascial release, stretching, massage, all that sort of stuff, um, which I'm also excited about and he agreed to do, which hopefully I'll get him on sooner rather than later. But let's dive into this first interview all about scans. Paul, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure. I think we, uh, I've been excited to talk about this topic for a long time and just trying to find the right guest. And um, I know you said that this isn't entirely within your wheelhouse, but before we get started yes. on today's topic, do you mind giving us a bit of an introduction about like your, your background and particularly like the website and online content that you've been sure. producing for so many years? Yeah, yeah. Um, 20 years of, of uh, science writing and publishing in this field, musculoskeletal medicine and pain, uh, injuries and rehab. Uh, I started out as a registered massage therapist in British Columbia, Canada, which um, uh, was, has a, at the time that I did it, it had a pretty rigorous program, three years of training. And uh, we were, you know, the, the profession was really aiming to uh, to upgrade at that time. It's uh, it's gone backwards a little bit since then. Uh, it's less training now to become a licensed massage therapist in this area. But back then, it was a three year program, and I did that uh, clinical work for a decade. And while I was doing that, I started publishing a website. Uh, mostly and originally to write articles to help my clients to provide you know continuing education for them outside the clinic and uh, and then it exploded and it found a global audience and so I've been doing that ever since and it's become my full-time career that's uh, painscience.com is the website and there is no subtopic in this field that doesn't interest me. But imaging is, uh, you know, of all the subtopics, it's not one of my stronger ones. Um, I, I know a bunch about it, but, uh, but it's probably not my strongest subtopic. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast where somebody talks about not his strongest subtopic. <laughs> well, it's just because your, your strong topics you're so strong in. It might just be that your subtopics <laughs> you. are just still elite in, in, nonetheless. Um, if, if you, if maybe just quickly, do you may, maybe want to talk about, it is painscience.com. Yeah. What are the, the main topics or I guess the most popular topics that you have on your website? Yeah. Uh, well, it, there, there is, I'm, I'm trying to fix this over the years, but you know, for a long time, there was a pretty strong focus on uh, massage therapy T uh, adjacent topics so lots of muscle stuff lots of uh, lots of things result related to soft tissue therapies and manual therapy uh, you know if i were to start from scratch today i would try to make it a much more general musculoskeletal medicine website um, but 
you know, I spent the first decade writing almost exclusively about things that would interest massage therapy clients and then more and more my massage therapy colleagues. So there's quite a strong emphasis on that. And, you know, an example of that would be, you know, the, the very tricky topic of, um, of trigger points has been a major focus of mine. That's the sore spots that almost everybody gets and nobody actually really understands. And I've done an enormous amount of work on that very specific little thing written, you know, an entire huge book about it and lots and lots of articles. Um, but as I've gone, you know, and it, particularly in the last five years, I've really tried to widen my scope. And, uh, you know, the, the world of pain is, is enormous. Everything from, you know, cancer pain uh, to toe stubbing pain and everything in between. And as I learn and grow and continue to, you know, endlessly study, I've been spreading out more and more into more med the more medical side of pain. You know, so for example, a decade ago, I had basically nothing about chronic widespread pain or fibromyalgia. Um, I was almost entirely focused on uh, sports injuries, running injuries, overuse injuries, and common uh, aches and pains like back pain. Um, but these days I write a lot about, about fibromyalgia and other weird mystery pain problems and stranger pain problems. Um, it, you know, it turns out that everything in this field is weird and fascinating, even the things that seem really boring and ordinary at first, like muscle strains, for instance. I have a book about that. It's one of the 10 books that I've written. And you would think that muscle strain is a boring topic, but it's not. Pulling muscles is amazingly weird and complicated. And so I've just continued to spread out into every pain problem I can possibly think of uh, to write about. It's a huge undertaking, like just to cover such a wide scope and just yeah. as research comes out and is updated, you're constantly updating, which is, you know, I constantly think about why there's so many misconceptions out there, why it's so hard to find the right information for a lot of running related injuries. And part mm -hmm. of that reason is because, you know, someone can write a blog 10 years ago and it just stays there on the internet without being yeah. mm -hmm. updated or, uh, and when someone searches that topic and comes across that blog, they kind of assume it as, you know, this is what the science shows, but yeah. science is forever changing and forever evolving. And our understanding is constantly changing and the general consensus yeah. is shifting you know, so much to when even I graduated, which was only 10 years ago. And yeah. what I like about your website is you're constantly updating. If there's something that's required updating or a shift in thinking or some other perspective, then you're, you know, updating it and making comments yeah. on it. And when I was looking through your website, that was something that was very, very refreshing. Yeah. And the original blog post from 10 years ago might not have even been good when it was published, but even if it was, it gets stagnant and, and out of date. It's amazing how often in, in just one work week, one average work week, you know, I'll find two or three studies that, you know, when I see them, I think, oh shit, I gotta, I gotta change some stuff. I gotta change an article. I gotta change three <laughs> articles. And it, we're always learning things that, change our understanding of how this stuff works and you know the, the part of the reason that misinformation persists and is so widespread is because we just don't know the answers and so much of what is you know supposedly known is actually just speculation and extrapolation from scraps of inadequate evidence 
Uh, so, you know, we, what you read is, you know, was somebody's speculation at the time that it was published. And who knows whether or not they've kept up with it and ever updated it. I have a really, really smart colleague, one of the smarter people I've ever known, um, who started a blog and stopped blogging, you know, roughly a decade ago. And at the time, the posts were great, but they did not stay great because the science moved on. So it doesn't matter how good it was to begin with. If you don't keep updating it, it's probably not going to be useful after a few years. Yeah, because people follow credentials. People follow like if someone who had who is really well respected writes a blog, you know that you know be gravitated and like their opinions are very uh, got mm. you know a high sense of value, high worth. But like you say, if it's if it's left on there, un and not really updated, then it can be made redundant. You know, yeah. yeah, in a blink of an eye, like a blink of an eye might be 10 years, but if it's still on there, if it's still on the internet, it can be, you know, yeah. quite confusing and quite, it's finding mis mixed messages all the time is, yeah, oh, it's yeah, quite absolutely. puzzling. And I, and I find it in my own, my own work. I'm appalled by my own work all the time. You know, <laughs> uh, a few years will, will go by and an eye blink. I'll put a whole bunch of work into something and it'll feel really good. And I'll think, oh, this is, this is all really sorted. And it's all, you know, citing the most recent possible relevant evidence. And, you know, I get it all to a nice polished state. And I think that's taken care of for a while. And then, you know, the next thing I know, <laughs> six years have gone by and I'm looking at it. I'm going, oh God, I really really need to update that. <laughs> so it, it's just amazing yeah. how fast it happens. Like I said, it's a massive undertaking and great for you to, to you know, take on that, that job, that responsibility. I know it's like your, <laughs> your primary work and your primary business and you've got books yeah. and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So, um, well, that's, that's awesome. It's a logistical nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I really want to talk about scans and runners, running related injuries. Um, people are confused yeah. whether to get scans or not, if they should just find like a health professional, if they suggest scans to get it. But I thought it might be nice to start off with talking about the positives, talking about the, the negatives, sort of what we both come up with and sort of playing off those before we dive into something a little bit more in detail. Um, yeah, sure. So if I was just to throw the question to you, what do you think the benefits of getting scans are, getting medical scans to diagnose a particular injury, what would mm -hmm. they be? Uh, well, the, the double-edged sword of scanning that, you know, one the, the great edge is getting awesome diagnostic clues that you can't get any other way or that in practice you're very unlikely to get without the imaging. Uh, there are things that, are very easy to miss with a physical exam and with history uh, that pop right out on uh, the right imaging. And you know when, when all the stars align and you get just the right scan that identifies just the right thing, uh, you, can, you can really get a nice strong you know, Mythbusters style, well, there's your problem. Hmm. Um, and sometimes that really obvious uh, finding is correct. That's that's the thing, and you know that that's imaging at its best. That's what we what we always want is the tough problem finally explained by just the right pixels on the screen that show you that's what's actually going on here. And I I think probably you know the best of the best is that there are so there are so many uh, injuries that you would think would be obvious and easy to find with history and exam. 
that aren't always. Um, and a, you know, a good example of this, I was just writing about this today. Um, I think I think this is a an old study from the mid two thousands of um, avulsion injuries, and that's uh, you know muscle tied to bone with tendon, and when the tendon tears off the bone, that is an avulsion. And an avulsion seems like, you know, that seems like a major injury, especially if it's a big muscle, like, say, hamstrings. And you would think that that would be kind of hard to miss, that you wouldn't need imaging for that. But turns out, sometimes you do, because of tissue swelling and muscle guarding, perhaps it's not nearly as easy to identify clinically as you might expect. And yet MRI can reveal it just fine. You know, it's most cases are going to be pretty obvious with imaging. Uh, and certainly management is going to be, you know, different. Uh, if you know that that is an avulsion as opposed to, say, a second degree muscle strain. Uh, so that's, you know, that's when imaging really shines. When it helps you identify the stuff that just wasn't probably going to get identified otherwise. And there's lots of interesting examples of that. Mm. And maybe identifying, yes, the diagnosis, but maybe the um, condition, like the scale of it or the grade of that particular condition, if it is an avulsion, right. like how mm -hmm. much is it? Uh, is it worth conservative management is it worth like this and we're going to talk about stress fractures later on but like the stage of the diagnosis um can really right. tend to manipulate or control the management or the instructions that are given it might be you know you can still run on this or no you need rest yes. or cross training or offloading or crutches for this amount of period of time um so right. working out the the particular grading condition can be important that can you know be pretty I guess depending on the injury it can be pretty accurate based on the the scans that you go with um yeah and can mm -hmm. help guide that management would you agree yeah i mean even when you nail the diagnosis um you know uh, what you know what kind of problem uh, just just grading can be a pretty useful outcome of uh, uh of imaging Espe especially i think mainly to distinguish you know, it, it's when it's when imaging shows you that the injury is more serious than you realize. The same kind, just worse, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's probably when it's most useful for grading. But uh, yeah, of course, it's it's often helpful to have a better, clearer sense of the severity of the injury. Yeah. But I think it's most fun when it helps with hard to diagnose problems that just wouldn't have been diagnosed at all. I I don't know that I would. You know, if we're if you're reasonably confident about the diagnosis. Um, I don't know how useful imaging is for grading alone. That that might you know constitute or at least risk getting into you know premature or excessive imaging. Yeah. Well, I guess in saying that, with the positives being those diagnostic clues that you're talking about, a lot of people yeah. would say, "All right, well, let me just get scanned for every injury to make sure that I'm not." missing anything right. or make sure that it's correctly identified straight away. But are, can right. you think of any major downfalls or negatives to getting scans or something you might be really cautious about when prescribing yeah. or sending someone for scans? Hmm. Let's see. Can I think of a downside? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can think of a few. <laughs> the, this double-edged sword, it's, it's, uh, that other edge is, um, 
is pretty sharp and the you know at its best imaging is solving hard to diagnose cases at its worst it is misidentifying the problem it is contributing to misdiagnosis um, premature and excessive imaging is a huge problem in the world of musculoskeletal medicine and the main reason for that is that so many imaging results um, are not as clinically significant as they look. They seem, you know, that there's that, there's that, well, there's your problem reaction. Well, what if it's not? What if it only looks like the problem? And th there's something very captivating about spotting something major on a scan. It's very hard to think past it. When you see, when you've, when you've had, you know, chronic pain for, let's say, two years and you're desperate for answers and that MRI is showing you something that looks like the explanation, but isn't. You don't know that, but it's not. It's not actually the explanation. It is really hard to ignore it. It is really hard not to, to say, oh, that's got to be it. But here's the weird problem is that there's so many things that show up on scans that are incidental findings that aren't actually the problem that look worse than they are that do not correlate with the pain that are not the thing and yet once you've seen them and once once a clinician has seen those things man they just take over <laughs> they just they dominate the discussion uh, and people in their minds, both the pros and the patients, everybody, once you've seen something, we just, they're just automatically equivalent, right? My problem is that thing that we saw on the scan. They are the same. But the reality, uh, the weird reality, is that pain and tissue state don't correlate neatly. Their, the relationship between tissues and pain is surprisingly janky. And there's a lot of cases of things that look like they should hurt, but don't, and vice versa. There's a lot of people out there in pain, and there's nothing on the scan that can explain it. So that, you know, that in very broad strokes, but using the widest possible brush, that is the, that is the problem with imaging is that it shows you things that aren't actually the problem and everybody gets all fixated on it like there can, couldn't possibly be any other explanation or any other factors. And, uh, and that leads not just to misdiagnosis, but to a really compelling misdiagnosis. It's really hard to see, to get past it to the right answer. One, once the wrong answer has taken over, <laughs> it's better to not know. It's better to mm. it's better to just not know than to think you've got the answer when you actually don't. Mm. Like when you talk about that, it makes me think. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Think about my 
early physio days when I was working just as a generic physio um, at a private practice and so many people have low back pain. It was like yeah. 70% of all the people I see, low back pain. And yeah. we know that the vast majority of back pain is non-specific. Like there's nothing structurally going on. It's just sore and maybe yeah. due to some overload, but structurally there's no change. But then they go and get scans and the scans reveal, you know, moderate osteoarthritis or degeneration or these like disc mm -hmm. um, degeneration and all these sort of findings what, that we try and explain is incidental findings because someone in their 40s, someone in their 50s, the, the older they get, mm -hmm. the more, um, I think it was potentially like 50-year-olds, like there's about 60% of them have some form of degeneration in their back mm -hmm. that's totally asymptomatic, that's totally like just a normal what we call incidental yep. finding. And so yep. that can easily um, be translated to running related I think, I injuries. I think it might it even be, be worse than that. I think it's possible that it's it, signs of uh, degeneration are even more common in even younger people. Mm. Yeah. And that goes for say osteoarthritic changes in the knee, um, yep. osteoarthritic changes in the, like the hips and other joints. We know I've talked to Lindsay Plass on the podcast who talked about the incidental findings of, um, femoral acetabular impingement and those type of scans of the hips that can just be asymptomatic in people in about 70% of the population. And if you go and get a scan right. and you have hip pain and it shows this FAI, you know, like you say, people will straight away link their, their symptoms mm -hmm. to that pathology. And so we need to be very careful with how we, you know, navigate yeah. this particular predicament because people want answers. They want to know why they have pain and, yeah. The, like you say, the, the scans themselves can be a little bit inaccurate in terms of the relationship between the pain that someone, the pain that someone has and what they have on a, on a scan. And so it needs to be, I guess, the interpretation um, and the way it's communicated to the, the person needs to be dealt with very carefully. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it requires considerable caution and diplomacy. And the, num the number one thing to do is not to equate the results, the findings with the pain, not to say, well, we, we found the problem and it is a torn meniscus. Um, say you found a torn meniscus, don't say that it's the problem because it might not be. And another really important point is that it, it not only might it not be the problem at all, it could also be only part of the problem. That the problem, the clinical problem, is the tissue lesion plus metabolic or pathological context. And if you get overly fixated on just the finding, right? Oh, it's just it's just that torn meniscus. Well, is it really the is it that really the problem if it would be painless if not for some other biological factor? Uh, what's really the problem? Is it is it that the meniscus is torn or is it the other biological factors? Well, it's both. It's not one or the other, it's the combination. But the finding tends to fixate people on what can be seen and what can be imaged and leads the mind away from the other things that might be contributing to making that actually a problem. Mm. Talk about these positives and negatives. It seems like, you know, this could kind of be solved if, 
uh, a runner had the right health professional by their side to send for scans if appropriate. And yeah. then they go get the scans and they're not told of their results until that health professional has the results in front of them, looks through it, kind of correlates it to their symptoms and their pathology and kind of disuses yeah. it as a piece of the puzzle rather than just like a piece of data, not as the definitive um, conclusion. And then explain right. to them and communicate to them, you know, what the findings might be rather than the the runner or the patient themselves reading through and seeing all these incidental findings that, you know, contributes to fear yeah. and worry and anxiety and that sort of thing. Um, right. Do you see that often? Do you see that, like, what's the usual um, approach for people to go get scans? Because I've seen people, I've talked to people who don't even see a health professional. They skip that altogether and go straight to the scans, go straight to yeah. the, the results. And then they're, they're either being explained it by a GP who hasn't really known of the nature of the injury or nature of their pain. They're just like relaying the word right. for word what's on the scans um have you seen that particular pattern uh in yeah, terms not of only have i seen it i think it's ex i think it's exploded in the last couple of years as part of you know the pandemic you know with more and more remote health care um, i think even more people are getting imaging results sent directly to them to then you know take to to healthcare professionals and discuss it with them but they're reading it first uh, and I, you know, I see it all the time in my inbox. People, you know, constantly show show me their radiology reports. They've got them. They've read them. They they think or hope that they understand their problem better as a result, and they ask for my take on that. You know, no clinical context at all. Virtually, <laughs> just you know, I have knee pain, and here's my here's my MRI. Mm. Um, what do you think? And mm. uh, and so I think yeah, I think it's. It's really common for people to read their own reports, but it's also really common. You know, so, so many clinicians aren't savvy about the double-edged sword of imaging, especially GPs. That I, I don't, uh, you know, on average, I'm not sure that they're much better at helping patients interpret and contextualize imaging results than patients are themselves. Uh, and uh, I think the, pa the educated patient probably has almost as good a chance as, a, as the average healthcare provider. You know, a, a good, you know, a competent clinician is definitely going to be able to perform better in terms of, you know, sensible interpretation and expert interpretation of it and putting it in, in you know, good context and helping the patient with it. But they're hard to find and the patient doesn't know. So, you know, it, it, I, see, I see patients bringing their misconceptions and misinterpretations of their, of their imaging reports to me, but just as often I see them bringing um, a doctor's misinterpretation uh, it can come from the misconceptions can come from them or from the healthcare provider and it both happen all the time mm. and like you say they heavily rely on those results and i've seen people not just hand me their results but like throw it in my face and say these are my scans and <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i think the if you to the uninitiated or like the untrained or those that don't understand the complexities of pain or their pathology like it makes sense. Like if someone says, I have knee pain, here are my MRI results. What do you think? That makes like total sense. It's like, 
Um, right. For those who are untrained, for the, the recreational runner, it's like, there's my answer. Just look at my MRI and see what's wrong. But right. pain's complex. And that's, that's why like you've got so much content on your website because pain has so many different mm-hmm. topics and the complexities are boundless or endless. And I guess based on your understanding of pain, pain science, why is it so careful to navigate these things? Why is it so... What does it mean for the recovery and the pain experience if someone does have an incidental finding on their scans? Like, what does that mean for their recovery? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the the ugly head of uh, nocebo um, rearing up like a serpent. Um, so let's uh, let's talk <laughs> about that word for a moment because that's what it's. Uh, there's a major piece of this puzzle. Uh, nocebo, the opposite of placebo. Uh, placebo is relief from belief and nocebo is the opposite. It's getting worse because of something that you fear because of something that you believe. And there are very few things that are as good at scaring the crap out of people as scary stuff on imaging reports. Uh, particular certain kinds of things, particularly. Um, I mean, there's ton, there's tons of potential for spooking people with uh, radiology, but stuff in the back is particularly common. You know, that it just it really it, it, the the disconnect between like things that as an expert, um, to the extent that I'm an expert, as a mistake. I let me clarify. <laughs> I'm, I try to never ever think of myself or refer to myself as an expert. I am more of a, self, a science journalist uh, reporting on what the experts know. But sometimes I screw up and I forget and I think of myself as an expert for a moment before I come back to my senses. When, um, when I see uh, imaging results, I may see something that to me, I think is really trivial. And to the patient, it's, am I going to die terrifying? <laughs> and the, the <laughs> gap can be huge, you know, the, between what, you know, how clinically important it actually is and how clinically important the patient fears it is. It's, it can be a vast difference, especially in the back. You know, they're basically thinking it's a tumor. It's going to kill me. I'm going to be paralyzed, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the reality may be virtually the opposite. Like, not only is that not scary, it's not even the thing that's probably causing your pain. It's probably completely unimportant and trivial. So the gap can be huge and people can get really scared and really fixated. And I think, I think where I, where I see the, the most disastrous cases, it's not, it's not just that it's nocebo. It's not just that it's a source of spooking. It's the obsessive, um, the fascination with this thing that has been found and the way that it eclipses all other possibilities. And that person is now walking around convinced that they've got this thing in them that is ruining their running career uh, or ruining their job and it's all because of that thing. And you can you can almost you can almost feel how desperate they are to just cut it out, get it out of there, get that thing out of there, whatever it is, whatever was found. Um, it's the intensity of that fixation on the thing that was imaged uh, can be really impressively strong. And that's I, I think that those cases can get pretty tragic, actually.
Mm. And can hinder recovery based on like your mental state as well. Especially if it's barking up the wrong tree, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. If it's not even the thing that's actually the problem, but even if it is, the obsession can be too intense. Mm. And I know we're talking about extreme examples here, but even in the mm. mild cases, it still play, it still plays a role in the background because, yeah, like we say, pain is complex. Pain isn't just you know tissue damage reflects the um, the level of pain that you feel. It is so much more than that and can be quite. Um, well, not very correlated at all to actual level of damage. It depends on what the brain perceives as a threat, what the brain perceives as danger. And these scans can significantly heighten and far surpass like rational um, right. threat levels of a particular injury and therefore mm-hmm. heightens pain. If the pain's more sensitive, more irritable and heightened because of that threat that's going on, whether that's... Um, rational or not then creates more anxiety and more frustration or more like obsession like you're talking about because of the the level of threat that the brain has perceived and all due to potentially if it could be uh, like you say an incidental finding could be nothing to do with the actual injury itself and Mm -hmm. the the scans never come up with like education or like load management or um, particular (laughs) educational parts of the injury that's really good to recovery it's really reassuring for the recovery that's never really mentioned in scans there's just detailing an image or detailing several images of what they find yeah. um yeah and so can play a huge role on recovery stress if it, it creates a lot of stress that actually hinders the recovery process right probably we we assume so it's probably important to acknowledge that we don't really know how much of a role nocebo and you know fear fear and stress powered um uh, changes in perception actually influence recovery um it probably does but we don't know how much and we don't know you know there there could be very severe chronic cases cases where you know perception of pain is not actually playing a significant role at all and and then there's others where it could be playing a huge role and not only do we not know, you know, in a scientific sense, how much and how, you know, how often does this happen and how badly does it happen, but it's also really, really hard to identify clinically um, and incredibly perilous for the clinician to flirt with, you know, you're not actually, you know, telling the patient effectively you're not as bad off as you think is it's very thin ice. <laughs> it's a diplomatically Definitely. really tricky message to get across, even though it might be clinically important uh, because virtually all patients will hear that as are you saying it's all in my head or mostly in my head and mm. you know f- first of all that's not what it means you know the the amplification of pain through you know fear and stress uh, if it happens uh, isn't it's not about pain being quote unquote all in your head um it's uh, but you not not only is it not that, but it's just incredibly difficult to talk about the role of the mind, any role of the mind in pain without spooking people. So it makes it really hard. Well put. Wish yeah, we wish well we knew put. more. If we knew more, it would be easier to to have those conversations. 
So I know we've talked about like kind of aggressive examples or like extreme examples, but for the runner who's listening to this podcast, maybe mm. they're injured, maybe they're considering getting scans. Is there a certain like protocol presentation signs, signals that may indicate you need scans versus you don't need scans? Is there, you know, a certain system to follow? Yeah, I, I put some thought into this before we um, talked today. I, I did some thinking about this question and and I probably because I don't know that I've got a good answer. Um, I, I, the best the best stories about you know when imaging was most valuable. It, the expert clinician pulls a bunch of subtle clues out of the ether and realizes that a scan is needed and saves the day by doing a scan when many other clinicians might not have and finds something important and everybody applauds and says, well, that's, you know, imaging at its best. <laughs> and thank goodness that clinician knew to look. But I think usually the, you know, the cues and clues that that clinician is picking up on are very subtle and, uh, it, it, I don't know that there is anything, you know, there, I don't know that there are good rules of thumb for this. You know, there's red flags to try to be more definite. For sure, you, you image sooner when there are red flags for scary things, when there are signs of possible scary causes of the pain. But that's pretty rare especially for running injuries. You know, that's rarely going to be the case. Not not unheard of, but you know, it's you know, when when someone comes in with what looks like um runner's knee, it probably is. It's probably not something scary. So I think mostly you do imaging um uh you start to think of imaging when things get more chronic and more desperate. The the more severe it is, the more uh, stubborn it is and the longer it drags on, the more important it becomes to consider imaging. But there's definitely no, I don't think there's any good clinical guidelines for when to image. Just not too soon is the main rule to follow. It's kind of like, okay, it's not, it seems like it's up to the clinician. So the, yeah. I guess it's the runner's job to find a person that they trust, a person that's, um, you know, within their rehab team that they respect the judgment of. And it's up to the clinician to try and determine, okay, first of all, is there any signs of red flags? If so, send off a scan straight away, which would indicate like serious pathology, life-threatening yeah. pathologies. Then you have potentially like in my mind, if you think it's something and you treat it like something and it just doesn't respond and there's there's no response to good management or good treatment and it could potentially be something else maybe yeah. it's worth getting a scan and seeing if it is that one thing or the other thing um but also certain areas i know we'll, we'll talk about um stress fractures a little bit in a second but <clears throat> say if it's the shin and people think it's just a severe shin splints when it could mm -hmm. potentially be a stress fracture you'd probably want to send that for scans, like if you're not responding to shin splints or not responding to, you know, <clears throat> correct load management, it's looking a little bit more like a stress fracture. Would it be worth going and getting scans just to rule in, rule out that particular pathology and then treat the management differently? Yeah. I, at, at what point is it 
acting stubborn enough to justify imaging, especially when you know that probably the explanation is that, you know, most likely that's a stress fracture and not, for instance, a medial uh, tibial stress syndrome. Um, You you might have a pretty high clinical suspicion that there's a a stress fracture brewing or already happened. Um, But that in that situation, I'm not sure it would necessarily justify imaging. You might just say, well, okay, based on, based on how you're responding to rehab, probably a stress fracture, pretty good chance. So let's start treating it like that, uh, which mostly mm-hmm. just amounts to being more patient and cautious and conservative with the progression back to normal activity. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure at what point you say, let's get in, let's do some imaging to confirm that it's a stress fracture or to try to confirm, uh, because the clinical clues are pretty strong in that case. So what would justify mm. the imaging? And I think if it's, you know, if it's bad enough, you know, if the level of disability is quite high and it's particularly stubborn, then you're not you're not just doing imaging. You don't just choose to do imaging uh, to confirm that it's a stress fracture, but also to rule out other possibilities. That the the severity and you know, duration is a red flag, which also deserves checking out. With, with stress fractures in particular, have you seen, like I've heard, I don't, I'm not sure if I've seen research or not, but I've heard that stress fractures are very often misdiagnosed and mismanaged Mm -hmm. for a very long time before they eventually scan and say, Oh, look, it's a stress fracture, particularly ones that are like around the hip or like the pelvis and like something that's masquerading as something else and can go several months before, okay, let's just do a scan. Oh, it's a stress fracture. And then treat it like a stress fracture. Um, in the research that you've come across, have you seen that particular pattern or that, you know, that misdiagnosis mismanaged for, for quite a long time? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, the I think that stress fractures just generally aren't on people's minds. They, they tend to think of them as something that happens to the shins only. Um, and in fact, they're fairly common. And, and the key to, I think the key to understanding how common they are is to, is to know that, you know, bone is, is not concrete. It's not dead, dumb stuff. It's very metabolically active, biologically fascinating substance that's constantly changing and adapting to stresses. And it doesn't do very well (laughs) with some stresses. And so bone fatigue, bone stress injuries, not just not just stress fractures. That's that's the tip of the iceberg. Long before there's a fracture. You've got bone fatigue and, and bone stress injuries. And if you appreciate how dynamic bone is, um, what, a, what an interesting and active tissue it is, it's a lot easier to keep it in mind as a diagnostic option that mm, bone could be, could be getting pretty irritated here along with you know, other tissues, right? All the tissues can get overloaded, including bone. Just remember to include bone. They can all the tissues can get overloaded, including bone. And I think yeah. if more clinicians kept that in mind, there'd be much less of a, of a problem with with the you know the nine months later. Oh, you've got a stress fracture imaging result. Oh, that's what's going on. You know that that's imaging is patching up 
a clinical problem, a diagnostic failure that shouldn't have happened in the first place in that case. Yeah, well put. And I'm glad that you sort of highlighted that it just needs to be on like, not top of mind, but just in consideration with all the other potential overload, overloaded structures. And potentially it might just be sometimes too slow. Like from a runner perspective, if you are used to running 5Ks, then you run a 10K hilly run and then your Achilles is sore the next day. You know, it's Mm -hmm. pretty classic overload. But um, would you is overloaded bone is that a little bit slower in response is it a little bit hard to directly correlate to a particular um overloaded event or is it more of a chronic overload rather than a particular one event mm-hmm. based on um, your understanding yeah I, I that's a good question and i'm not sure that i know the answer but my impression from what i think i know is that yeah bone stress injuries are a little harder to diagnose not just because they're not high in mind but because the the response the adaptive response curve is a little softer um, you get much sharper spikes of symptoms with uh, tendon for instance right like you can you can go out on a run and you can you can piss off a tendon in one run no problem right and it's it's obvious i went for a run and i irritated my tendons um and i think the same thing can happen with bone stress injury but it's often it's more like i went for 10 runs and irritated some bone um it's a little bit you know it's dynamic tissue but it's not you know, quite as reactive as tendon and muscle uh, and sometimes ligament, I think. I think I think that's mm. my answer, but it's a good question. I'd like to actually look into that one more carefully and try to, you know, find out how... I, but part, of, part of the reason we're talking about this and, and part of why I was keen on this conversation is because I've been very interested in this question lately of the, the subclinical stress fracture, the bone stress injury, what what it feels like and what happens and what, you know, what it, how it presents clinically before it's a fracture. And, uh, and I suspect if I look into it, I'm going to find out that we're just not sure, you know, when, when does that start to hurt? How much does it hurt? Are there a whole bunch of people out there who have almost stress fractures who are in quite a lot of pain or does it really have to actually fracture before people hurt? I suspect it varies a lot and I suspect we don't know nearly enough. Okay. Have you, in the research that you've already done, have you established kind of like a bit of more of an understanding of early signs before an actual bone stress, like fracture or bone stress reaction? Any, any subtle signs and symptoms that might indicate you're on that trajectory? Yeah. Well, I think part, for, for sure, I have the impression that, you know, there are cases that are symptomatic before there's an actual stress fracture. Uh, for instance, before it would show up on an x-ray, right? Because you, you have to have an actual um, fracture to show up in an x-ray. Before an x-ray uh, can see anything, uh, you're only going to see something with a bone scan. And that's injecting a radioactive tracer that is attracted to cells, bone cells that are uh, busily making new bone. So that tends to happen wherever there's injury to the bone. Uh, it's basically like detecting, it's the bone scab detector. Uh, so you inject this tracer and it's sucked up into the specifically those cells, yay science, 
that um, that are bu busy building new bone. And so in the in the bone scan, you know, any area of bone that is under strain will usually light up, as they say. And so we you know we know that that people are symptomatic before they have an actual fracture but how often and how bad and you know are there cases where people have really quite serious symptoms but no fracture uh, another clue in and a complication is that it probably many bone stress injuries are accompanied by um, stress injuries to soft tissues as well and the, the shin is probably the classic example where it's it it's really all of the above it's the muscle it's the tendon it's the connective tissue wrapping of the bone they're all failing together <laughs> they're they're all going ah together and which one goes first tends to define the injury right so if the if the um the tendon and the wrapping around the bone starts to pull away from the bone first then we'd call it oh that's a medial tibial stress uh, injury um, but if the bone cracks first, then it's a stress fracture. But they tend to all be happening to some degree at once. And it tends to be kind of like a sign of fatigue. Like running fatigued tends to, you know, just not do very well for runners. Like the loads that are accumulated mm -hmm. just a bit displaced a little bit, like a, a harder foot strike on the ground, maybe like a, a longer stance time. And I, there, there are studies that have been done that show that runners who have a history of stress fractures actually just hit the ground harder. So it could just be that that hit the ground harder just puts more strain on bones around the foot and shin and that sort of thing. But um, mm -hmm. like you say, if, if you're running fatigued, then you're also fatiguing the muscles and putting them under unusual strain. The tendons themselves are just, you know, mechanically inefficient when, when you're running a bit sloppier and a bit like less springy, but then you're also doing like the, the shock attenuation through the bones is just a lot greater and mm -hmm. whatever fails first at the first point of failure, whatever structure depends, decides to be right. is, um, what you end up with. It seems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In your, in the rest of the research you've done around this topic, I'm always curious to ask, have you come across any, I guess, misconceptions, misunderstandings around stress fractures or, maybe what was a consensus around stress fractures 10, 15 years ago, we now have a different understanding of any, any revelations or um, information on that topic? <laughs> um, I don't know if I've got anything good on that question, but cer certainly part of it would be exactly what we've just been talking about. The fact that it's not just the fracture and that they're more common. Uh, I, I think that's the most important one, that they're more common than most healthcare providers have given them credit for. I think that's probably the big, the biggest change in the field over the last decade is just that it's, it's really something to, to watch out for. Um, maybe another one, and, and this, I, um, I'm hesitant here because I'm really, I'm like, I'm really still actively looking into this and trying to learn about it. Uh, but the reinforcing the idea that that bone is tissue and dynamic um, to what extent are we more vulnerable due to systemic metabolic and pathological factors um, 
and you know we we know that there are extreme biological and pathological situations which really predispose people to stress fracture and that's kind of creepy um uh, the, the question is, how far can we extrapolate from that? Um, you know, is is the runner who is simply maybe, and this is a question I'm, I'm trying to answer this week. I don't have the answer. Sorry in advance. I don't have the answer. I'm trying to find out. But does the chronically underfed athlete have a higher risk of bone fracture? Um, and that connects with the concept of the female triad which is, you know, an idea that's, what, 25 years old now? And there's been a bunch of controversy about um, that uh, hormonal and metabolic and nutritional changes, particularly in women athletes, leads to much higher risks of bone injury. Um, but there have been experts who have challenged that model and said, it's not exclusively about women. It's not exclusively about diet. It's not exclusive, exclusively even about being an elite athlete. You don't have to necessarily be um, basically that, you know, there, there are hints that this can basically happen to anyone, that you don't have to be the most extreme example. You don't have to be an elite athlete. You don't have to have um, an eating disorder. You could just be a tired middle-aged athlete under too much stress who's you know chronically exercising while you're not you know in a bit of caloric deficit and metabolically your body is screaming silently <laughs> please stop <laughs> and you're getting a stress fracture and that if that's a thing right and i really want to be clear i don't know that it's a thing i'm wondering if that's a thing and i've been actively trying to find out lately and doing some relevant reading and it's reasonable speculation at this point only but if it's a thing and it's there's certainly analogies there's certainly other things like that in the field then it's really interesting and it's a really good example of how you know, you can get all obsessed about your running mechanics and how you're hitting the ground and how your gait changes when you're fatigued or, you know, your characteristic gait foibles. And if the real issue is that you're underfed and exhausted and stressed, then the mechanics, not so important. You'd be fine if you fix the metabolic situation. It's just really interesting possibility. And, uh, uh, and and it it could be that could be how it is i don't know hmm. i'm glad that you're you're one to you know highlight that you don't know you're, you're trying to work on it but don't, don't have any conclusions or any like opinions on it concrete yeah. just yet it, it goes yeah. to show that you know you really focus on the research and you really focus on letting that dictate your opinions and the advice that you give out um and i want to thank you for all the valuable information that you've had on this podcast so far. Any other final takeaways as we wrap up this episode while we're talking about scans and talking about whether to get scans or not, talking about pain, talking about stress fractures, any any other final takeaways that you'd like a runner to know that we haven't necessarily covered? Um, that's a nice, wide open question. <laughs> what would I like to say? To We've talked about so many runners. different things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I really want runner, injured runners to know that 
uh, initially for a little while, I, I really strongly believe in resting, uh, in not hitting the rehab exercises too hard too quickly. Uh, and uh, you know, everybody's very shy of resting, especially athletes. Very, very worried about it. Very worried about deconditioning. Uh, and I want you to know that the, the only thing worse than getting deconditioned is continuing to overload and never getting better. <laughs> so there, there's a tendency, and I think it's quite an American tendency. Um, there's a very, you know, there's a very gung-ho, um, uh, hit, hit an injury with as much rehab exercise as you possibly can as soon as possible. And that'll get mm. you better. And I, I think it gets overdone. You know, there's, there's definitely uh, something to be said for, you know, strengthening and building yourself back up as soon as possible. But there's also something to be said for taking it a little easier up front. When you first notice something's going wrong, uh, think about the, the, the role of stress in in injury, and I don't mean emotional stress. I mean, I mean everything. I mean the you know the entire picture of how overloaded your body is, and that that is probably the in most cases for most runners most of the time that's the most important thing to address first is give it a rest, um, as uh, uh, Greg Lehman would say, uh, calm shit down, build shit up. You start with the calming down, and I I like to emphasize the calming down. You are not going to get really out of shape um, if you just really take it easy for two or three weeks. It's not going to ruin you as an athlete. <laughs> but a year of, of an injury that won't go away, that might ruin you as an athlete. So that's a, yeah, that's, mm. that's a good one that I like to, to try to pass on to all the runners I know. We self-sabotage ourselves a lot when we get, you know, first signs of an injury where fear of losing fitness, fear of, you know, or just like ignorance or not wanting to convince yourself that you are injured and you just keep running through it, keep overloading it, keep, you know, doing the wrong things, mismanaging it just keeps getting worse. And I think there's something to be said, like if you catch it early enough and you find symptoms that are so minute and you, like you say, pay attention to the, maybe you've overloaded it just needs to be a minimalist change at that stage like the sooner yeah. it is you can just make a yeah. slight adjustment in your training and it makes a significant difference but yes. catching it way yeah. too late then it has to be like a significant change which yeah. people don't like and they just ignore it and then injury gets worse <laughs> yeah no i like that i like that idea bravo it's and and i would love to know and we don't we don't have data on it i'd love to know how clinically significant uh, niggles are um, you know, how, how early can we detect a brewing problem and how much does it matter? Um, and you know, if, if every runner immediately took a week off, if they just, you know, pick up on the slightest sign of, of trouble, what would that do to injury rates? Um, it's, mm. we don't know, we don't have that data, but I'd love to know. The other side of that, of course, is that every runner constantly has all kinds. If we responded to every <laughs> niggle by taking a week off, none of us would ever run. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, the, um, one of the things I love about you is the fact that you, 
you can say you don't know about a certain topic, but I'm looking more into it. But I also really respect people that are willing to change their opinions based on the the different information that comes in. Because some people can be fixed, rigid, rigid like beliefs on a certain thing. And then as soon as context or information comes in that, you know, might yeah. be of a different opinion, they just push it away and just fixate on the stuff that's like that confirmation bias. But yeah. whether conflicting information changes your opinion or not, like you're considering it, you're considering it in in the the vast context of what you already understand, which I already, I get that sense from you after talking throughout this podcast. So you're, you're a wealth of knowledge and it's, it's, elite in terms of keeping really up to date being willing to change your opinion based on new information that's coming in and i really respect that so thanks for coming on and sharing all your wisdom thank you i appreciate that very much and that concludes another run smarter lesson i hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a run smarter scholar because when i think of runners like you who are listening i think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge who don't just learn but implement these lessons who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again who want to take an educated active role in their rehab who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes and last but not least who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.